Greetings and welcome to the God Speaks podcast. My name is Billy Cappage. And I'm Ricky Gidamel, and we both serve as catalysts for orality with the Lausanne movement. We want to welcome you to an ongoing conversation on orality, discipleship, and missions. We're excited to introduce to you a God who loves to communicate, who's been telling his story through rich media since before creation. This multimodal communication is recorded in his word and best embodied and exemplified through the living word, his son, Jesus Christ. And so because we are humans and made in his image, we believe that we were made to go and do likewise, to communicate with him and with others. Building on that foundation, we want to explore how we can reprioritize communication, specifically oral communication, as a vital category within the church's understanding of missions as we seek to communicate the gospel to the world around us, drawing from God's example. Each episode will be inviting different seasoned orality gurus and practitioners to help us along the way. This conversation is impacting our lives, our families, and our work. And we're excited that you're joining us as together we can reaffirm that our God speaks. But I I wondered, let me just open us up. I want to just say a warm welcome. Um, I know it's different hours of the day for many of you. um, And and I know all of you have very busy schedules. So it's not a small thing for you to take time out. I'm actually really excited about today's, today's session. And I'm excited Bill and Tom are on with us. Um, I think in some ways we've been building towards this session and finally we've been trying to clear away some of the questions or what are we talking about when we talk about orality or um, interpretation, how do we engage scripture, what do we mean by storytelling, all those things. I think today trying to come at this issue of hermeneutics, what are we talking about and, and what, what, is, what does this mean? So I'm excited for today and excited about what Bill has. This morning I was reading in 1 Samuel. And uh, chapters 21 and 22, you may remember it's the story where David's on the run and uh, he's on the run and he goes to Ahimelech, the priest, and uh, he's in need. You know, this is where he ends up getting Goliath's sword. The priest gives him some of the showbread, which ended up to be a big deal. Um, But then when Saul finds out about it, you know, Saul kind of demands him to come and and it's interesting. He says, he says, this is not the first time that I consulted the Lord on behalf of David. And I, I just was intrigued. It actually says it two or three times, you know, Saul's in a rage and basically is saying, Hey, why he was my enemy. And why did you consult God on his behalf? But I, I thought it's interesting um, that at least in this season of David's kind of relationship with God, he was going to the priest to kind of consult on his behalf. And, uh, couple of things. One is kind of the progression of understanding. You know, you read the Psalms and you're thinking, wow, David, he doesn't need a priest. He just communicates and pours out his heart to God. Um, But apparently there was some maturing that must have been happening. And maybe there's more. We wish we knew more of that story. But but the the thing that stood out, what, what stood out to me was we have a God who can be consulted. That's what I thought. I just was kind of shocked by again this morning. The God that we want to better know and the God we're trying to make known in our context, um, that, that's, that is a God who welcomes us to speak to him and to seek his counsel. And, uh, and then he speaks back. He speaks back. And I, that, that's the miracle. That's the, I mean, there's no other religion in the world quite like this. And I, I just love that. And it's good for me to kind of say it out loud. That's right. Yeah. So what if, what if we pray and invite the God who speaks to speak into our time and, uh, and we'll go from there. Jesus, I do just want to say thank you that you are a God who speaks and you speak um, to us today. And you spoke to Ahimelech, you spoke to David, you spoke to, to men and women throughout scripture. And, uh, and then scripture stopped, but you haven't stopped speaking. And you keep speaking through your word and through your spirit. And uh, so the, the reason we're here, the motivation for why we're here is so that we can better understand how God speaks. And then we can speak well. We can better understand how to communicate who you are to other people. And so that they can hear your voice. They can hear you. They can understand your word. 
So that's why we're together. So would you make our time together valuable for your purposes around the world? Uh, where, where some of us are in Portugal, some of us are in are in uh, California, some of us are, are in uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa. We've got a whole spectrum of voices and perspectives. All of us are in need of you. So we ask you to speak to our hearts through this time together, and we give you praise. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 I want to just some of you. Uh, you may. You may. Some of you may have been on the call last um, last week, or excuse me, last month. Um, and uh, we were trying to look at this issue of orality and its relationships to texts, and particularly how it influenced kind of the creation and making of texts, particularly our scriptures. Um, and so we've kind of been drawing on when we talk about orality, we're not trying to say we're not anti-text. We praise God for the, the written word, if I can. But we're trying to better understand the role and the relationship of the spoken word and the written word, how God speaks through both. So, uh, so today, our theme is on oral hermeneutics. And it's just basically trying to better understand this, <clears throat> this big issue. How do we understand interpretation, biblical interpretation, um, but from kind of an orality perspective? Right, right. And uh, we, we have two experts the guys that literally wrote the book on this, uh, Bill and Tom are with us. We highly recommend their book, The Return to Oral Hermeneutics. You can find that on Amazon or wherever else you shop. So I'll t- I can try and put a link in there into the, into the notes here. Um, but Return to Oral Hermeneutics, this gives, we're, we're just going to get a touch, uh, just a small snippet of what they have offered in that. But, um, but I'm excited. And, and Bill and Tom, I, I just kind of turn it over to you guys. Um, if you have, let me say for the group, if you have questions, if it's an immediate question, put it in the chat. And if it's something that kind of, we want to discuss, write it down or hold on to it. And then we'll, we'll save some time at the end because those are really valuable. So, so please, Bill and Tom, I'll turn it over to you guys. Yeah, okay. go ahead, Tom. Thank you, Billy. And, uh, Ricky, if you come by, um, good to be with you all again. Um, I thought maybe I'd try to tie the things together because they've been doing over the months like this. And so <coughs> fragmented. Um, the book, the, the return to oral hermeneutics um, was basically two threads tie that book together. First one being with our work among the Ifogao in the Philippines and them not being able to understand my hermeneutic. <laughs> and that started raising a lot of questions. So, and it's like, do people, then I asked myself, do people really have to understand and analyze, be able to analyze grammar if they're going to understand scripture? Or what is the role of understanding orality in understanding scripture? And we just had a great introduction there um, with two or three times it's mentioned, right? Consulted um, in the the, the verses that was read to us or cited to us. And so that's part of oral hermeneutics, right? That repetition tells us that that is an important part of that story, that we better grasp that if it's mentioned two or three times like that. And so which hermeneutic then is going to be the most natural for people, for the majority of the people, not just the professionals, but just for the majority of the people. And is there a preferred sequence? Is it in textual hermeneutics in contrast to oral hermeneutics and so forth? Um, anyway, that led us to a basic question that centers the book for us. Why is it important then to know and to practice oral hermeneutics in interpreting and in communicating then uh, Bible meaning, <clears throat> biblical meaning? So that's the central question uh, to our book. So. What we've been doing, um, <clears throat> I should say too, that our audience is going to be for the, the professionals. There's 600 plus footnotes in there. <laughs> and that's to show that what we're talking about here, you just can't throw it away, okay? <clears throat> A lot of scholarship out there on this. And the other one is for the practitioners. And practitioners can just keep reading through it or can um, read the footnotes as well. Um, and then the second thread that ties it together, of course, our world is changing. The Western world is becoming very much oral, oral plus, I should say, with the digital age and so forth. So we have to bring that back um, if we're going to really understand what's going on. So what we've had, we've looked at in kind of fragmented way is how the text was constructed. And for example, 
we saw that the spoken word was actually preceded the written word. And that's the big forgot in the hermeneutic guilds. And that's what we have to bring back if we're going to be able to understand the fullest impact and get the fullest meaning out of the text itself. And that literacy has blinded most of us to the oral features of what is already in the scriptures. We just miss them. They're all over the place, but we miss them. And if you remember Hebert's fatal flaw of the excluded middle, that's kind of what we've done to, in the world, uh, the spirit world. We kind of, you know, pushed that aside. We kind of done the same thing in the world. And so we'll call that the fatal flaw. So the flaw of the excluded voice that was mentioned to us by Billy this morning, that voice that speaks to us, that's, we have to get that back. And then of course the spoken word influenced the written word. And then not only did it speech precede text then follow text. So it didn't just stop once we had the Bible. Uh, and that's why we call it what? The spoken dash hyphen, I should say, written word of God. It's both of those. We focused on the written, I think about the Ephraim, they got to come on the oral side of it. And then they moved and they collect, they got to move into the written side of it. I came in on the written side of it. I never really went back to the oral side of it. So they got both sides of it. We only got, I only had one side of it. And I'm trying to pick that up. So that was the textual construction that we've looked at. And then we looked at the volume and more than half of the scripture is narrative. And then if you add the Psalms in there, you're up to about 90% of scripture is oral and comes to us in an oral form of some kind. And then how it was delivered and the dialogue that was taking place there was given. It was the whole story was read. There was dialogue back and forth going on. It was communal, wasn't privatized. And then that brings us up to oral hermeneutics where we are today. So the book we divided into three parts, the demonstration, and uh, Bill will tell us why we did that, and then into the propositions that come out of that demonstration, and then back to Echoes doing another story to now to reflect back and try to put it all together now that you have this under your belt. Okay, Bill, I'll turn it over to you. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom. Um, Yes, the, <clears throat> the living voice. I hope my living my voice lives throughout this, <laughs> this session. I think it will. Um, oral inductive Bible study. We know about inductive Bible study, but one way to describe storytelling is um, inductive Bible study, oral style. Um, and it's hermeneutics that's oral. And really oralizing especially the narrative sections of scripture, but all of scripture, oralizing that scripture completes its purpose, completes the purpose of scripture. Um, if, it's, if it remains just ink and paper and only read silently, it doesn't really fulfill its purpose. It's a communal oralizing of the word. And then of course, application that completes its purpose. So, as Tom mentioned with the book, we started with a demonstration of storytelling, and then we end with a demonstration of storytelling. It's like a transcription of a storytelling event, which I'll demonstrate to you in the next 25 minutes or so. But um, so it starts with a demonstration of storytelling, and then sandwiched between those two demonstrations is the theory the theology and the communication theory behind storytelling. It unpacks what happened in that event, what happened in the storytelling event, and then closes with another demonstration, which applies the deeper insights that we discussed after the first, the first demonstration and draws further applications. So it's kind of practition theory, practition uh, theory sandwiched between the two uh, practitioner storytelling events. So I want to tell you a story today. Um, I, if you want to observe the process, do that. Primarily enjoy this story. Primarily enjoy this story. Get into it. Picture it in your mind's eye. These are real people. Uh, this event really happened. 
And as we tell the stories, we picture it in our mind's eye, uh, the scenes almost like a movie, it, it's brought back to life to us. And then the Holy Spirit works to bring insights and meaning and depth and application to us. Um, so we've got about, what, 25, 30 minutes, Billy, for the story part? I can't hear you. If we can, sh- if we can shoot for 20, okay, okay. we'll do that. there at the end. But yeah, 20, 20 25 would be great. I'm going to give you an introduction <clears throat> to the story, what's necessary to, to know, to fully understand the story, a brief introduction. Then I'm going to go through five steps in the telling. Uh, I'll tell the story. I'll ask one of you to retell it to the best of your recall. It's not a long story. It's only seven verses. So if you listen well, you should be able to, to retell it quite well. And it's okay if you only get 80, 70%, that's all right. Because after you retell it, we'll quickly go through it again as a group. Then through my questioning, we'll look for observations, spiritual observations through asking good questions about the characters in the story, drawing out the character theology uh, in the story through questions, observations. And in the last five minutes or so, there'll be application questions. So how does this story speak to us today? So here, here's the, and I usually like to stand when I tell the story. I don't know if I, it's gonna come through on Zoom very well, I'll try. I stand when I st- tell the story because then you're more free to use gestures, um, actions and expressions, or you're more free to use body language to communicate the story. Well, here's an introduction to the story. <clears throat> the story took place about 800 BC in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Elijah the prophet had just ascended to heaven after he had established a school of the prophets. And this school of the prophets was called the Sons of the Prophets. And uh, Elisha, his, uh, his mentee, his mentoree, had taken up Elijah's mantle of authority, and he was the leader of the school of the prophets. Secondly, just to know this was a, a time of famine in Israel. Times were really tough. Some people couldn't even put food on the table. These are hard times in Israel. I think that's about all you need to know for the story. And then here's the, here's the story itself. One day, <clears throat> a widow of the wives of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha. And she said, my husband, your servant is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come and threatening to take my two sons and make them slaves. And Elisha said, well, what, what can I do for you? What do you have in your house? And she said, I, I have nothing except, well, just this little flask of oil. So Elisha says, okay, I want you to go out among your neighbors and borrow as many empty jars as you can, not a few. And then go into your house with your sons and close the door behind you. And then take your little flask of oil and pour into those empty jars and set them aside. So the woman did that. She poured into the empty jars and set them aside. And after a while, there were no more jars. So she said to one of her sons, bring me another jar. And he said, there aren't any more. So the oil stopped flowing. So the woman goes to the man of God and tells him what had happened. And he said, good. Now, Go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And that's the end of the story. Now, <laughs> if someone would uh, retell that to the best of your recall, start with, start here. <clears throat> One day, a widow of the wives of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha. Start there and then just tell the story the best you can for me to recall. Who wants to volunteer? (laughs) 
This is to get you engaged in the story, talking about the story, oralizing the story. It's okay if you don't get it all. Who wants to do it? You're going to get more out of it if you volunteer. I'm here to tell you. Well, you, you have to get a recruit. You have to assign. <laughs> I bet you could tell it well, Carol. <laughs> you want to try? Okay. One day, the widow of one of the prophets came to Elisha and said, I have debts because my husband has died and they are going to take my sons to slavery because of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, Elisha says, well, what do you have in your house? And she said, I have nothing except this small flask of oil. He said, okay, go out and borrow as many containers as you can find and bring them to your house. Then you and your sons go in the house and close the door. And I want you to pour the oil in the containers. So she did. She got lots of containers and she poured the oil and it kept coming and it kept coming and it kept coming. <laughs> and uh, finally she said to her son, bring me another container. And he says, there aren't any. We filled them all. So she went back to the prophet and said, they're all full. What do I do now? <laughs> says, well, go and sell the oil and you can pay your debts and you'll have enough left for you and your sons to live Excellent. on. Excellent job, Carol. Really good. Well yeah, you got, you got the 95, 98% of it. That's really good. <laughs> That's really good. I know Africans are good storytellers. Some of the best storytellers are Africans. It's, uh, <laughs> I really admire that. Um, I'm going to quickly go through it again. It's only a seven verse story. I'm going to do what I call a lead through. I'll tell the story again, but you're going to help me. So I'll begin the sentence and you finish it. That way, all of us are telling it together again. And this will be the third time we've heard it. So then we'll pretty much have it in our mind. So tell well, it before you. you start, before you start, can I just remind people to unmute yourself so that we oh, can yeah. have, hear you as, as you contribute? Yeah. Make sure you do that. Victor, Grateful and Davis and Adam, everybody unmute. Yeah. Susanna is uh, Davis and Adam whale. Can they unmute? Um, there you go. Good, good. Okay. Tell it with me. One day, a widow of the wives of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha. Elisha. And she said, My husband, your servant, your servant is, is, dead. is dead. And you know how he served the Lord. How he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come and threatening to take, take my son. The slavery. Take my two sons. Two sons and make them slaves. Well, so Elisha says, well, um, I can't do anything for you, lady. That what he said? No, he said no. no. He said, uh, what, what can I do? What can I do what for do you? Have? What do you have in your house? house. In your you have house. In your house. And she said, I have nothing. 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 Nothing well, but that small jar. Except this small what? jar this of oil. Small jar of oil. So Elisha says, okay, I want you to go home. Go, 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 out, out, among your, go out among your neighbors. 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 And borrow as many yes. as you can. 
as many Not empty jars as you can. And then go into, your, go into your oh house and close, close, the, door. The, door. close the door with your two sons. Two sons. So did the woman do that? Yes. Yes. She yes. Did that, and she's in the house. What's she doing? This Filling the jars. Pouring the oil and into the jars she got from her neighbors. Yes, and and doing what with them? And setting them and aside. Them she kept doing that until what? No more jars. There were no more jars. No more. No she says to her son, "Bring me." Another What's jar. It? Bring me another jar. And he said, not anymore. And so, and so, what happened to the oil? It stopped coming. Well, then the woman goes to Elisha. Elisha. Tells him what had happened. And so Elisha says what? Three things. He says, Go fine now. Go and sell the oil. Pay your debts, and you and your sons, sons. live on the rest. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so now we've been through the story three times. I told it, Carol retold it, and when we told it together, uh, communally. So now the story's pretty much in our minds. Let's talk about it for about. 10, 15 minutes. Let's say we've got 15 minutes. If you want to cut me shorter than that, you can, Billy, but usually we take at least at least uh, twice as much time digging for observations, spiritual observations. What truths do we see in this story? And then about half amount of that time for application. Well, how does the story speak to us today? So let's just start out. What's the real issue in this story what's the real emotional connection in this story what really grabs you emotionally in this story what what's the real problem the loss of sons oh yeah and what is how does this woman feel you know imagine you uh, if your mother desperate desperate desperation yeah well, devastated. Let's look at, huh? devastated devastated yes yes uh, so let's imagine. Imagine you're that woman, and you're uh, you don't have enough you you don't have enough food on the table, and uh, now you're you're threatened. You have the threat of losing your sons. Um, let's look at what the woman does briefly. We ask questions of the characters. We ask, what do we learn about the characters in this story from what they say and from what they do and from the decisions they make? So the first character in the story is the woman. We see what she does. She's desperate, but she goes to the prophet. Just, and then she expresses her heart to the prophet and her need. What might we learn about this woman, about her character, just from what she says and does in this first part of the story? What kind of woman is she? Uh, mom. She wants to take care of her kids. Yeah. Yeah. She's she seeking. To, go ahead. Oh, she's seeking out an answer. So she's taking initiative to figure out how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's a woman of initiative and caring for the problem. Um, uh, also, um, it's it also seems that she still have that faith in God. Yes. Um, because she could have actually gone anywhere. Else. But she yes. chose to come to a prophet. Excellent. Excellent insight. Because she did have other choices, right? We see what she does. She goes to the man of God. But she had other, other options, She other choices. What other options might she have taken other than what she did? Try to so, borrow the money from her Tried to neighbor. borrow the money. She could have tried to borrow the money. What else might she have done? She would just, just said, oh, there's nothing I can do. Let them take them. She could have just let the let the creditors take her sons into slavery and just gave up. What can I do? Yes, she could have done that. Turned, so to, turned to her birth. 
Oh, I just was yeah. going to say like to the witch doctor or to kind of that yeah. whatever their community. <laughs> other sure, she could have gone to to a darker spirit medium or a witch doctor or a you know uh, yeah she could have done that. Um, anything else? Any other options? I don't See, know about at- that culture, but what would be common in many cultures today would be prostitution. Yes, absolutely. I think she had that option. She could have uh, gone into pro- prostitution, sold her body for food for her kids. Um, I'm thinking of one more option. Um, um, uh, she she could also have um, cursed God for abandoning her and her children. She could have what? Cursed God. She could have cursed God. Yeah, she could have cursed God. Cursed God and die kind of a thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought also she could have tried to run away in the night, take her two sons and run in the night, oh. run away. So she had she had several options. And by looking at the options a character has in a story, by looking at the choice they did make, in contrast to the other choices she had, we learn about the character of that, of that person. So we're learning about the character of this woman. She's... Um, she made the choice to go to the man of God. That says a lot about her character. Because of time, we're going to move to Elisha now. Now, Elisha is uh, presented with this desperate need. Elisha, at this point, has options. He has choices, how to respond to her. We see what he does. He asks the woman two questions. But what else might he have done? What other had could have ignored her just ignored her sure i can't help you lady i'm sorry you know um anything else he could have might have done Remember, he's a, prophet. He's a man of god he's a prophet he's performed miracles go ahead yeah then he could have just uh, say let's pray let's pray he could have said let's pray yeah um, I think also uh, you could have taken advantage of her. Taken advantage of her, yes. Well, that's the other side of the prostitution thing. You could have taken advantage of her, yes, uh, yes, sweetheart. I'll uh, I'll meet your need, but uh, I, I want something in return. You know. Uh, and does that happen today? Of course, it does. Uh, so. The taking advantage could also be him taking over the sons and telling them to serve him, and he got up to pay the money, but he the sons will now serve him instead of going to the bond stuff, and that could also be a mm-hmm. form of taking. Yeah, yeah. So Elisha had has other options, he, or he could have he could have being a prophet, he could have just prayed, you know, that the Lord would poof provide miraculously. The, the food and the oil in the house without any without her breathing. But very interesting what he does do. He asks her two questions. Now, how, do, how might we see the wisdom of God through the prophet? This is the mouthpiece of God. So Elisha's wisdom is God's wisdom. Um, how do we see the wisdom of God in him or her, him asking her these two questions? And her response, she's when he asks her these two questions, how does she respond? What do we learn about her further from how she responds? She she responded in faith. How do you see that, brother? Um she responded in faith um, because that's um um, that option was not an easy one to obey in the first instant, but her ability to obey the instruction and to do as being told shows the level of her faith in God. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of the godly character, aren't we, in this woman she obeyed. I'm interested, I'm interested in her first response when he says, what do you have in your house? She says, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then she kind of catches herself. Well, I do have this little 
little jar of oil, but her first response, I have nothing. What insight might we get from that into her, into her, her character, into her as a woman? I have nothing. I think she was also getting close to giving up. It's possible mm -hmm. she might have already started selling her properties before now and yeah. was just at the point of, okay, I'm done. There's nothing left. Yeah. Yeah, you can, I, I think that's, that's a good insight. You can just feel the desperation, can't you? I have nothing. But then she catches herself, well, I have this little jar of oil. <laughs> it, might we gain an insight from that, how she catches herself in the end there and says she does have a little jar of oil, but. There's a certain level of integrity in the sense of like, it would be that a jar of oil is in some ways doesn't count. It's like, it's almost insignificant. What, you know, that wouldn't make anybody's list of household items really. Um, yeah. And yet, at least in at least in my modern sensibility, uh, maybe 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 in that day, but and yet there's a certain sense in which she's very honest in the sense of like this is all I have. Like I okay, this is what I. There's a certain level of integrity, I guess. Yes, 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 yes. That's uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, so let's move on because of time. Um, so she does obey. She goes out and does what the prophet suggests or tells her to do. Um, when, when people are hearing this story for the first time, you're wondering, would they have expected Elisha to give this counsel to go out and borrow as many jars as possible from the neighbors? What might be the wisdom behind <laughs> Elisha's counsel here? Why not just meet her needs? Why go out and involve the neighbors? Why go out and borrow jars from the neighbors? And why involve her sons? What, what might we insight might we gain here in this, this council? It was obvious to everyone that when at the end that a miracle had happened because their containers had been filled with oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just think of the impact on these neighbors. I mean, you wonder, did these neighbors know her, you know, and um, did they know of her plight? Uh, now they're being asked, you know, you, you, you wonder the impact on the neighbors. What might some of them have been thinking? You wonder what they thought when she asked for them. Well, why in the world do you need our, our jars? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What yeah. they would have thought when she's returning it full, you want to buy some oil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I won't charge you for the jar. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And then the next part of the story, okay, she does this. She borrows lots of jars, and he's, she's told to go into the house with her sons and shut the door. Why that detail it's in the story? And shut the door behind you. What? This is part of the prophet's counsel. What? What insight might we gain from that? Why shut the door? Uh, maybe to avoid uh, interruption. Yeah, to afford what? Interruption. Uh, to, to stop interruption. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. If the door was left open, then would the neighbors be looking in? And where's my jar? You know, <laughs> um, what might what it might have been the impact or the effect of the mother and her two sons closing the door behind them and being there alone with the the miracle that's happening? Uh, what's the impact on these two boys? Think of that. What's the impact? How are these two boys responding? You know, they know they're desperate and their mother's desperate and they've gone out and begged for jar. Now they're in the in the house alone with the door shut and this miracle begins to happen. The oil continues to flow. What's the impact on these two boys? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, like maybe given the, the history of the father, yeah. who went into debt. So with them, seeing this ministry, they, they will be in, impacted in such a way that they will not continue in their father's footsteps. I don't know, but just, just that my thinking, yeah. it helps them to be re- to see. Yes. <clears throat> and for what God has done to take them, their mother out of, or, and out of the trouble, that they will not perpetuate what the father did to, to, to leave them with that, that kind of death. Yes, yes. It would be a clear sign to the sons that uh, the God of their father was meeting their needs. Yes, power. Will they have stories? Will they have stories to tell (laughs) to their children and to their grandchildren? Think of the story. You know, we were desperate. My mother had no food. We were going to go into slavery. And then the Lord, the Lord provided this miracle of oil. It was everything we need. You know, think of the stories they have to tell. Transmission to the next generation of the miracle that the Lord provided. Powerful. Now, Elisha had just met the need, just immediately met the need without having her go out and borrow the jars and shut the door with the sons and all that. Would would the same impact have happened, you know, uh, the same influences? Anyway, so let's, let's move to the end of the story because of time. So the miracle happens. Bill, so just can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. Uh, Lucia or um, Davis there was just commenting. She makes an interesting point that I don't want to miss in the chat. Is she said it's done in secret and keeps yes, it okay. show, which it's interesting. It's almost like there's a certain sense in which God wants the story to get out, but it's not. It's not like He's doing it in such a way for publicity or popularity it's not a show which i just think it is interesting there is a certain level of privacy there are certain things that are just for the boys to see and for the mom to experience interesting yes i'm curious by that i think that's a good yeah yeah. i've i'm impressed by that too just the intimacy Mm. you know being shut in the closet with the lord you know as it were and uh, the intimacy of that that type of theme repeated in the scriptures it's, it's yes. a common thing. Yes, yes. yes. That's, uh, well, so the, the miracle, beautiful. So then, uh, but the oil stops. It doesn't continue flowing all day or for three days or for a week, it stops. And then um, she's excited. She goes to the prophet and he tells her, all right, now go sell the oil and pay your debts. You could live on the rest. Um, very interesting. Today, now I'm moving to applications. We could spend a lot more time on even on questions uh, in of the characters in the story, but because of time, the process is to move from observations then and there to applications today, now. And I usually use the sign to the heart, application to the heart. <clears throat> today, do we? Today, are there women? today like the woman in this story are there single mothers today who are struggling <laughs> to meet their kids as needs are there women like this today yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what does it look like today describe what that might look like today the, the situation of the woman the widow in this story what does it look like today what does it look like today in your country In the U.S., it will look like mortgages to be paid. Mm-hmm. Do you know any, any single mothers, uh, mothers whose husbands have left them or who never had a husband, and they're struggling to try to put bread on the table? And what, what are their options? What decisions do they make today? There's, there's one I've walked with. Her major challenge has been school fees for her children and her options were to pull them out of school. Options to pull them out of school, yeah. Yeah. We looked at the options this woman had, you know, run away, borrow money, uh, go into prostitution, um, give up and die. 
uh, are those any? Do any of you know anyone or know a story of of a woman? It really doesn't have to be a woman. It could be a man in desperation who who made those wrong choices or bad choices. Um, Go ahead. Okay, there was one um, that happened in one of um, the mission field I once worked in. She lost her husband, who happened to be a Christian and uh, a minister in the church. And her husband's family asked her to either pack her things and leave the community, or she married the late husband, Edda brother. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. So she, her solution was to marry... Um, she she actually at the end married the husband Edda brother and she became the fourth wife. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the solution. That's the solution. The widow in this story, she could have looked for a husband, I guess, quickly. That's another solution. Um, but here's uh, because of time, Billy. I know we got to move on, but let me. Normally, what I do is I take another ten or fifteen minutes and draw this out of us as a group. Today, uh, we see in the story, this woman went to the man of God, and we saw how the man of God counseled her. So application for today, women like this, women in desperation like this today, or men, people in poverty and desperation, if they go to the church, to the man of God, to the pastor, from this story, what insight do we gain as to how the pastor, the church, should respond to meet this need should the church just give her money outright does this story counsel that no 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 how would you apply the counsel of this story to meet needs today Mm. when they when a woman comes to the church and she's desperate how would the pastor respond according to the insights of elisha here Ask about what, go ahead. Oh, ask about what resources they might have that they haven't thought about and how yeah. they might be able to use that. Excellent. Uh, is it Susanna? Excellent, Susanna. See, you see, you see the questions of Elisha and what he told her to do, how it helps this woman maintain her dignity. She learned that she was part of the answer to her problem. She wasn't totally destitute. She didn't. She did not have nothing. She. She. It was wasn't true to say I have nothing. She had something, and for women today or anyone who comes and they think they have nothing, they've lost their dignity. They think they're completely destitute. We need to help them see that they do have something. If they have eyes, if they have ears, if they have health, if they have hands, if they have friends, they have something. And if they use what they have like Elisha made her use what she had. If she had, she had neighbors, she had friends. If she, when she used what she had, the Lord provided, the Lord multiplied what she had. Therefore, therefore, she maintained her sense of dignity. She was part of the solution to the problem. She wasn't totally passive. She wasn't totally a victim. She had, she used, like you said, initially, uh, Susanna, she had some initiative and she used it. So helping people maintain their dignity, even in poverty. And then secondly, and then I'll turn it back to you, Billy. But secondly, um, big insight in application is involve the community. Don't just meet this person's need individually. Don't just give them money and they go home with money. Involve the community. Go out and borrow jars. Uh, and then the whole community is blessed by involvement in meeting the needs. So the counsel of the story I see is, is the building of community through community meeting needs, offering this woman work. Maybe somebody in the community has some work they can offer this woman and pay her for her work. Um, hospitality for a few days here and a few days there. The solutions come out of community action together. And that seems to be the counsel that Elisha had um, in his counsel to this woman. And that's how her needs were met. Now, let me say this before I turn it back to you, Billy. Because of time pressure, I did more teaching 
than I would normally do. Uh, that that sort of the genius of this method is to draw the draw the answers and insights from the group, not to teach. We as uh, theologians and Bible teachers were tempted to teach and preach, and um, I I try to always turn my temptation to teach into a question instead of telling you the answer turn it into a question uh but i i kind of did more teaching today than i would have because of the time pressure and i wanted you to get the insights of this story but i think you know it well enough now it's second kings second kings uh four one to seven it's only seven verses you know the story refresh yourself on this story go out and tell it to a group tell it to your family tell it to your small group Tell it to whoever you can and ask questions about the characters in the story. Ask questions about the options that the woman had, the options that Elisha had, the impact on the two sons, the impact on the community, the neighbors. And we didn't even ask about the impact on the creditor. What would have been the impact on the creditor? Uh, of this and so you, so you can talk about this story for a good 30 or 60 minutes depending on the time you had. I, I, I often go 60 minutes on a story like this. You can talk 60 minutes on a seven verse story. And that's, this is what we call surplus of meaning and application. And this is the power of oralizing a story. And whatever group, you know, every time, every time a story is told, the chemistry is different because the group is different. And so insights will come from the group that are different for each group. And you've got the, the dynamic here of andragogy, which is adult learning. You've got, if you're telling this to a group of adults, all those adults have life experiences that they will bring to bear on the story. Life experiences. I appreciate the stories you told. Uh, was it Davis or who was it? Or Victor, one of you told a story about the woman. See, you have stories to tell that bring application, that bring uh, insight, that bring um, that bring to life the counsel of this story and how it can be used and how it speaks today. So, there's a short version, really, of of a of a storytelling event, um, which we call uh, we call oralizing, and uh, the insights we've gained are oral hermeneutics from oral hermeneutics. Bill, I just want to say thank you for that. It just, it's, I, I love this story. And yeah. I've told the story many times. And yet to hear it again this morning, oh, you're just as like such a great invitation. I, I know some of you all have questions about the process. And, and this is part of the challenges where we're actually looking at the process when part of it, all of us would like to pour another cup of tea and, uh, and keep talking with the story. So, yeah, but I, uh, for, for time's sake, let me just ask Bill or Tom, can you in just two minutes, so I'm going to, if you can keep it short, <laughs> but highlight for us, because I think this is important. What you just have said, as you said, we've oralized this story. This is oral hermeneutics. Could you, just for some of us, it might help to say, okay, connect the dots, make it, make it obvious. What were the, what are the pieces that of the process that we just did that are unique or somehow the oral process takes advantage of in a unique way? Can you give us just a couple of the highlights of what we've just done um, so that we can begin to recognize them elsewhere? Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Yeah. Have to uh, unmute. You need to unmute. Need to unmute. You're mute. There we go. There, yeah. Uh, go ahead. There we go. Um, sorry about that. Um, one of the things that we were saying through oral hermeneutics is that it gives a fuller meaning, a richer meaning, and it's also impactful. And when you think back to the story this morning, some of the insights that were thrown at you, you thought, I never thought about that one. That is really, really interesting and good. <laughs> and that's, that's the power. It's, it's focused on the story, but the story is what? It's made up of characters. And so we're looking at the woman. We're looking at her sons. We're looking at Elisha. We're looking at the debtor, the, the, um, the creditor. And 
we're looking at each one of those and we're, we're analyzing, I shouldn't even use that word. We're actually, we, let's put it this way. We became not analyzing the story, but we became what? Embedded in the story ourselves. Mm. And once we become embedded in that story ourselves, then it's like, we're not off the stage looking and watch, watching this movie up here in front of us. No, we're on the stage. We're right there in the house. We're right yeah. there beside yeah. her when she's talking to Elijah. We're right there when she's asking her neighbor, can I borrow this? I should say something too about the cultural side of it. What's borrowing in a different culture? And for Ifugao, um, sure, here, take that. And they would never expect it. If they want it, they would come back and get it sometime and ask for it. Otherwise, it's if you took it, it's yours, okay? That's borrowing in Ifugao. <laughs> so there's cultural elements that come into play here as well. <clears throat> but you were embedded in that story. We're up on the stage with each one of those characters and we're walking through it. That's why <clears throat> it's so impactful. And that's why it's so memorable. And then easily, what? To be repeatable. <clears throat> Have either of you done that. story in the form of a uh, interview? After you've done the story, you've done a few of the questions, find interesting questions you have. Have you done it as an interview? I have not done it as an interview, but I like the idea. So you have the woman you have on stage. You take somebody from the audience. She's the, the woman. Oh, you I have, see what you're saying. You have the two what sons. Mm. What were you thinking, sons, when uh, Elijah <laughs> told you to put to close the door? Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Detter, what were you thinking when she paid you? Have you done the interview part of it like that? I think that'd be an excellent way to dramatize it. You're, we're moving now from, from storytelling a bit more toward drama, doing a skit or dramatizing it, which is fine. I mean, you could do a whole, a whole skit, a whole dramatic production of it, quite a quite simple one with some simple props, ask people to be the characters in the story and to learn the part of the, their parts in the story. And do it that way as a as a simple skit or simple drama. Excellent way to do it. Excellent way to but do it. I have done that. I have done that with stories. You Excellent talk about to uh, Tom. You talk about it puts you or the the hearer of the story into the story, and that's the feedback I get, whether it's here in Portugal or in Bangladesh and China. That they're there in the story, and it's completely different than a list of word studies. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, wonder, I wonder if one of the things that we're saying here that that Craig, you're highlighting for us that I wonder if was would resonate with others is the the oral hermeneutics. It operates on an imaginative register or plane. So immediately you're inviting people to kind of put themselves into the story or the narrative and, and that allows for a different level of engagement. In some ways, it allows for a different level of affective or emotional engagement. Yes, that's a big part, Billy. And it's, it's, emotional, it's not, that, emotional it's not that we don't get that when we read it, yeah. but it, the, the actual storytelling invites the body to participate in a way and invites the eyes, the ears, all of that that I, I think is one of the advantages. And again, you can do that when you read scripture. It's not that it's not there. It, the, just the oral engagement lends itself to the imaginative um, realm in a way that I, I actually think is very beautiful and very, yeah. very yeah. fruitful as we're trying to communicate. Yeah. The imagination and, and, and emotion, uh, yeah. feeling the emotions of the characters, uh, emotional identification with the characters, it brings them to life. And people in the group, the, the, I, the optimum way to do this is a, with a small group, you know, a, 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 you know, from three to 12 or even 20 character, uh, 20 participants in the group is optimal. But when you do that, people in the group will identify with the different characters. So for yeah. this story, there would probably be women in the group who would identify with the woman. Um, there may be someone who would, who would identify with the creditor or with Elisha or with the neighbors, people identify with the characters in the story that most, that, that are most um, applicable to, to their needs and to where they're, their station in life. 
and uh, so that's why the story gives many windows out of which to look. Uh, yeah. um, said. Something that you did, Bill, that is not typical in the sermon, the um, body movement. Yeah. Body movement. Yeah. So yeah. when yeah. when I, I do the story of like the, the storm in the boat where the waves are going or through the roof where the man is Lord. Yeah, um, yeah. People oh, end yeah. up following and they're Absolutely. getting wet or coming through the ceiling with you as you move. Absolutely. Brings it to life, brings it to life and, and stirs the imagination. What was it really like? Wow, that's what it was like. And you imagine yourself being there, you know. That's, absolutely. That's that's it. That's one of the keys. The, the term I thought of that is used in anthropology is participant observer. As a listener, you become a participant observer, participant observation. You're an, you're an observer, but you're also participating, <laughs> participant observation. And uh, so you're identifying with the emotions. You're hearing and feeling and seeing and moving. Yeah, you're absolutely. Asking questions that direct the audience to participate on that level. Yep. Yeah. Our, our time is almost over. And I, but I, I, this, I love this. I love this. One of the things that I have found fascinating in, in engaging people kind of in oral scripture, just in, um, and kind of being a part of oral scripture engagement through methods, just like this one, Bill did so well, is that it is very, it seems to be relational. And mm. I think that's what we're getting at here. And Tom, what you indicated at, that's the advantage of character theology. Yeah. Yeah. It, the stories, the scriptures invite us to to cultivate almost in a sense of a relationship with the individual participants in the story. And then we begin to build those kind of identification bridges, um, whether yes. good or bad. I, I want to be like this person or I, you know, who am I being a creditor to? Who's afraid yeah. of me yeah, yeah. or I'm actually threatening someone, you know, it's like, where are the negative, the negative <laughs> identifications that maybe we don't think about enough. Um, but yep. it's it's this it, it it ends up centering the engagement of scripture on a relational plane, which again I think is very powerful, and it has a tendency to cross cultures. Yes. So whether yes. You know, whichever your home context is, whatever your home <laughs> community is, you're able to identify with different people in the group, and and if you can't identify, that even produces its own set of conversations. Oh, what what do you not identify with? Yeah. Um, which that's also, it. That's it. That's the big oh, part of it. I, Bill and Tom, thank you for this. And I I want to thank everyone. It's always hard to do a discussion, a group discussion on Zoom. Thank <laughs> you for being brave and, yeah. and jumping in. It, it, thank you, Carol, for telling the story. <laughs> well it, done. It reminded me. This whole thing reminded me of our family devotions when I was a kid. And we'd always have a Bible story, but then some days they'd say, well, let's choose a story and act it out. And the others would have to guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you did it without words, they would have to guess what you were acting out. And so I learned a lot of Bible through our Bible stories. Well, that's good. Uh, let me just say this, that when we tell us stories, Bible stories, we, our intent is to tell them accurately, not to leave anything out and not to embellish it, not to add anything. When I told the story, when I began, I opened the Bible as a marker. Here's where the sacred story begins. I didn't read the story. I told it from memory. But then when I was finished, I closed it. Those are the, the beginning, the telling. The markers are, I open the Bible, tell the story accurately, and then when I'm finished, close the Bible. Now the story is finished. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to be communicate the story accurately. Don't add to it. Don't detract to it. But don't tell it by rote. Don't learn any one translation by rote. You tell it in your own words. Tell it in your own words from memory, but accurately. That's, the That's a good word, Bill. That's a good word. I, 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 for time's sake, I want to honor those who have other commitments. I, I wish we could keep going. 
Um, yeah. I want to encourage you next month, we're going to be back here again. And uh, one of the things we're going to delve into a bit deeper, we're just going to kind of keep going at this. Um, we meet on July 19th, July 19th. Um, and again, it'll be 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. I think that's uh, two o'clock in the afternoon UTC time. Um, and we'll send out that update. I see there's some emails. Thank you for those. We'll try and email you the, those updates. And uh, so you have that. I'm excited. Next month, we're going to look at kind of revisiting the Hebrew hermeneutics. And we're wanting you to see Bill and Tom are going to kind of carry on in our discussion, helping us better understand how the digital oral, the oral and digital oral hermeneutics we're talking about here flow right out of the, out of the Hebraic hermeneutics yeah, um, of, of the Old Testament. And, uh, and I, we've, we've talked about that kind of tangentially. I, we're going to do kind of another deep dive into that because I think it's so helpful. We're not trying to bring something new. We're trying to say, hey, how do we rediscover some of these treasures and apply them yeah. in our context today? So I'm That's excited. The book is called A Return, A Return yeah. to. This is not exactly. some new fad. It's Good. not some new postmodern fad. This is a return <laughs> to the Hebrew Bible. Good. You know? So good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me pray for us. And again, I want to say thank you to everyone who participated and particularly Bill and Tom. Thanks for giving us leadership here. So well, Jesus, well. I thank you for these men and women. And I thank you for your word. What a joy to be able to sit and discuss. Um, we're talking about oral hermeneutics and how to understand scripture, how to oralize scripture for um, the context each of us are in. But what a joy to be able to spend time with Elisha. And, and this woman of great faith and her sons and her neighbors, Lord, uh, the creditors. I, I just think some of us are dealing with situations that are very similar to this, different, but very similar. And, uh, and so some of us need to go and, and, and make some action steps, whether that's putting our trust in you or getting wise counsel or, or demonstrating for our children that God can provide. I don't know what obedience looks like for any of us. But God, help us be faithful to what we've discussed about today, and then help us in our own ways as we try to create opportunities for people to engage Scripture wherever yes. we're at, in whatever context. Um, I just pray, could you give us wisdom to know how to do this better for yes. your purposes and for your kingdom around the world? So I bless our brother, my brothers and sisters today. I thank you for their time. And we look forward to being together again next month on the 19th. We pray all this Amen. in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.